Hello and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we're back at it, like a crack at it, discussing the life of Alexander the Great. Last episode, we discussed the moves and actions that Alexander took to secure his throne, as well as the territorial holdings and influence won by his father, Philip, and prepare for the invasion of Persia following the murder of his father. We also got into some murder mystery vibes going on a little bit, some investigating going on over here, talking about potential suspects in the death of Philip Jan Pausanias, who may have been more or less just a tool in a wider scheme. I gotta say it, someone's got to at least. I wish I had done a little bit of Knives Out Last Onion homage, got a little Benoit Blonde impression going for that segment, at least a portion of it, but you know, what are you gonna do? Sometimes brilliant ideas... They arrive a day late and a dollar short, and it's not what you want, but, you know, charge it to the game. I wrapped up that episode with a brief discussion of the financial situation that Alexander found himself in upon taking the Macedonian throne and while preparing his forces for their invasion of the Persian Empire. A brief recap of that is that our guy, you know, he was out here, he was a little bit cash-strapped due to his father's lavish lifestyle as well as his father's preparation for the invasion of Persia, but he was pretty asset-rich. And today, we will be continuing that discussion with a focus on the fabulous, mind-breaking, insane amounts of wealth, not only in pure gold and coinage, but in valuables that Alexander the Great would accrue throughout his conquests. But before we get into the dollars and cents of this episode, remember to follow the show on Instagram at High Tea Obsessed Podcast, which is the best place to stay up to date with the happenings of this illustrious and beautiful show. There's also a Twitter account linked in the show notes. However, I'm not great at keeping up with that, besides the occasional retweet and stuff like that. So Instagram is really the best place to stay up to date with what's going on. Also, if you have the means, the motive, the opportunity, maybe if it's not out of line, drop a little five-star rating, five-star review, wherever you find yourself listening to this little ditty right now. Just if, you know, you feel like being cool, being rock solid, being awesome. Also, also, if you haven't been locked in, last week, Words and Whiskey released episode zero of their coverage of the Greenbone Saga, featuring yours truly, featuring your boy right here, me. So I will be appearing on probably all of their episodes from now on until I think July, mid-July, as we discuss the amazing Greenbone Saga by Fonda Lee. It's an urban fantasy set around a mafia family in a pseudo-Asian nation, and is one of my three favorite series ever. It has probably, or maybe at least, let's not get ahead of ourselves here, but maybe my favorite fictional character ever, and is the best series that I've ever read. So, if you're a fan of epic fantasy sagas, you want to listen to me talk about things besides history, be sure to follow and subscribe to Words and Whiskey. And you'll be able to follow along as we discuss that amazing series with me, PJ and Cross from Words and Whiskey, and Ben and Aaron from Howler Pod. So if you've been following the show since its inception, friends like best friends of the program here, Ben, Aaron, first episode I ever did, and PJ and Cross frequent appearances on non-history episodes. It's been a lot of fun so far. We have episode zero and episode one in the pipe. It's done. And so that's covering the first nine chapters of the first book, Jade City. So again, be sure to check 
that series out so that you can follow along there if you are so inclined, and I would appreciate it. Anyway, quick pitch of how they do things over there. Generally, the hosts are just Crossland and PJ, and they read a book or series that Cross loves and wants to discuss with PJ. Now, there are a couple of wrinkles here. Number one, PJ has never read the series they're discussing, so he only reads the allotted chapters for that week, and then the rest of the series remains a mystery to him. So he's, you know, he's reading along as the series progresses. He's left on brutal cliffhangers. He's guessing, he's speculating, he's enjoying it as a first-time reader in this really novel experience. No pun intended. Same thing formula-wise here, just with more people. Also, you know, words, that covers the reading aspect, of course, whiskey. We're going to be drinking, a, you know, drink or two, maybe three, while breaking this down. And there's a featured cocktail each episode, and then the rest of us are just drinking whatever. Already been a lot of fun, like I said, and it's just going to get better as we go. So lock in and read that series with us if you haven't already. But that is enough hemming and hawing, jamming and jawing from me. Let's get to what you wise and wonderful listeners are here for, and that is Alexander the Great. Alright, so I know I just made a big point about the intelligent of the great real quick. I don't know if I've always done this while re- recording by myself, but I've been talking with my hands so much this episode, it's crazy. So, just picture me vaguely gesticulating all around. I'm pointing, I'm doing like jazz hands almost. I'm like full-on pontificating already. So, we'll see, we'll see. As I'm sure you're sick of hearing from me by now. Philip II of Macedon turned his kingdom, a resource-rich backwater at the fringes of the Greek world, into a superpower in just 23 years. He inherited a nation poised to be ripped apart and plundered of its resources, with a shattered army, and most likely too poor to afford to equip its army with armor and traditional armaments, and many of his predecessors had only been able to mint coins and bronze. Fortunately, He was a visionary, able to harness the resources of his nation, its large population, the natural farmland, the forest, the mines, and then continually add to these, as well as his his financial reserves, through conquest, through steam, and through wheeling and dealing. He was known not only for his prodigious talents as a conqueror, but his prodigious talents as a spender as well, spending money nearly as fast, if not faster than he earned it, which was, you know, kind of par for the course, part of life as constant campaigning drained the resources, and also part of the reason for the constant campaigning. You know, he had a campaign to finance his campaigns. As we touched on last week, all this spending and the war preparations left the treasury not only empty, which is an exaggeration, but in debt when Alexander took the throne. Something that I think is lost in casual coverage of the ancient world And this isn't something I'm a huge expert on, but to oversimplify things here. The ancient Greeks and the ancient Greek world, relatively poor, now super serious, more serious historians of ancient Greece. I'm sorry if that's out of line to say, but hear me out for a minute. By relatively, I mean when we compare them to the wealth of the Egyptians and especially the Achaemenid Persian Empire. So one of the things when you're reading these histories one of the things that stands out is how contemptuous the Greeks are of Persian wealth. How it's like it's soft, it's coddling them, and they use like a lot of sort of you know racist tropes to describe the wealth of the Persians. And so it's like you know is that because 
they thought wealth was, for lack of a better term, sinful? Was it because they thought poverty was a virtue? Was it because they were broke, you know, and the Persians were out here like, hide the money, all poor people are around. It's possible, you know. So here's something to get to where I'm coming from here. Obviously, when I say poor, I mean monetarily. They had, you know, they had the fucking olives going on. They had olive oil. They had the ships going on. They had shipping trade, all that good stuff. But this wasn't an area known for farmland, right? This wasn't an area great with pasture land for horses. They have a ton of forests in Greece. And so the primary currency, at least in, you know, Athens, the added standard, all that, which most of our sources come from once again, but the Greek unit of most of their history was the drachma, a coin minted in silver, which isn't to say that, you know, canes like Philip and other canes on the fringes of the Greek world or that specific city-states in Greece didn't mint coins in gold. Again, not my field specifically, so I don't know enough to say whether it was super rare for them to do that. But the standard unit was silver. The Persians, meanwhile, under Darius I, introduced the gold derrick as their standard coinage. Although, you know, they still let their territorial areas, you know, they weren't minting coins anymore, but they weren't like, hey man, you can't spend that old money. You gotta spend only the derrick. So, it's not like it was the only currency in the kingdom. But right there, we're, you know, silver in Greece, gold in Persia. Now, our guy Philip II, he minted some coinage named after himself in gold and silver. And that became the first major gold coinage of the Greek world, according to Frank Lee Holt. But still, in general, for most of its history, the overwhelming majority of its history before Alexander the Great, the predominant coinage of the Greek world was the silver drachma. So, now we're moving back to Alexander. Often when we discuss his legacy, he's remembered primarily, you know, if not for his great military deeds and his conquering, you know, his generalship, which is perhaps most notable for how much he inspired others like Hannibal, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Pat, and countless others. But if we're not talking about that, we're talking about how he supposedly ushered in the Hellenistic age, introducing Greek ideals to the East, and then that intermingling of ideals, cultures, customs, trade goods, all that, into the Hellenic or the Hellenistic kingdoms of his successors. However, an understudied aspect of his legacy is perhaps his introduction of plundered Persian wealth into Europe that he should most be remembered for. So really quick, before we fully delve into the thick of this and get really going, this is not my field. You know, I am a historian, trained, only master's level, not a PhD in history, studied primarily academic history, or studied primarily studied primarily American history in my academic career, which, you know, let's let's not get crazy. I was out here reading requisitions from British generals and officers during the American Revolution, you know, lot books of trades and stuff in colonial America, things like that. So I wasn't totally eschewing the financial aspects of history during that, but it wasn't my focus by any stretch. Also, you know, not an economist. Not a numismatist, can't even say it really. Not an economic historian. So, 
for this episode, I will be relying primarily on Frank L. Holt and primarily his book, The Treasures of Alexander the Great, How One Man's Wealth Shaped the World. Also, of course, I'm peppering that. I'm using a little bit of common sense, my training as a historian, and the works of the other historians on Alexander that I've read to color how I'm interpreting Holt's work. But as far as I could tell, his book is the most in-depth coverage of Alexander the Great's wealth and its impact. So he tries to do a couple of things. He tries to, as realistically as possible, determine when and where Alexander won his wealth and plundered it from Persia, and how he spent it, which is made difficult, of course, due to the lack of primary sources. So, one of the issues when it comes to discussing Alexander the Great's massive wealth, beyond the fact that it's just cooler and sexier to talk about his battle prowess, his possible insanity and alcoholism, and the decades of wars following his death, it's just how fucking huge, how unbelievably massive his fortune was. Ancient and modern sources are riddled with words like incalculable, fabulous, enormous, mind-boggling. I, in fact, issued a few of those words at the start of this podcast, right at the top. And Frank L. Holt notes that in four months, Alexander would capture about a quarter of the wealth stolen from the Americas by Spain in the over a century from 1520 to 1660. So in four months, during his conquest of the Persian Empire, Alexander captured a quarter of the insane staggering wealth that Spain plundered from the Americas. He also says, and he notes that this is becoming like a sort of commonplace comparison, but that the only comparable event in history to Alexander's, to Alexander's plunder of the Persian Empire is the exploitation of the Americas by Europe following the biggest quote you've seen in your life, discovery, because they didn't discover anything of the Americas. And I think that's just a handy comparison, especially to, you know, we're moderns here, and especially, I think my audience is primarily American, so I think it helps us because we're more familiar with that sort of titanic shift of these riches, not just, you know, gold and silver, but also things like lumber, things like beaver pelts, fruits and vegetables from the Americas, how valuable that stuff became in Europe and how that motivated a lot of exploitive trade with indigenous peoples and conquests of the Americas. So I think that's a nice little way to think about how massive a shift Alexander's conquest and plunder of the Persian Empire and introduction of Persian wealth into Greek and Hellenistic world, how crazy that was. Another handy way to imagine how wealthy Alexander was at the time of his death is this. If every person alive in the world at 323 BCE, which I believe, I should have wrote this down in my notes, but I believe in his book, Frank Delholt puts it at like almost 130 million people. If each of them was given a drachma of silver, so about 130 million drachma, Alexander would have been 11 times richer than the rest of the world still. That's insane. That's that's crazy. That's like, basically, imagine if you gave, I mean, this is different because we can't compare the currency and also you can't, like, there's way more people now. If you gave everybody on Earth a dollar and then, so, you know, that's, what, 
8 billion people, and then you were 11 times richer, which doesn't even like, we got people richer than that, which is insane. Anyway, that's a little off the jet digression out here. Don't do math on me on that. That was not planned. Sorry. Basically, what I'm getting at with all that, though, I think if we say unfathomable wealth, I think it's a fair and fine assessment, you know? Like, I can't wrap my head head around, I can't wrap my head around just how wealthy this dude was. And I think that now it's time to stop trying to and lead us into how he won this wealth. So in the early days of his reign, Alexander didn't really change things from how his father did it. He didn't start minting coinage in his own vigils until after his victory over Darius III and the Persians at the Battle of Issus. In these early years, Alexander was pretty busy, first reconstituting the gains of his father and then invading the Persian Empire in the region of Asia Minor. He won his first sort of major battle against the Persians at the Granitus River and then set about conquering the cities in that region or satrapy. For the most part, and we'll touch on both of these things in far greater detail in episodes about Alexander's administration of his conquered lands and in general, and then in episodes about Alexander's military skills. But for the most part, Alexander kept the Persian civil institutions more or less intact. He would replace Persian, let's say in a city that he conquered, there was a ruling class that favored the Persians. He'd replace those with more friendly to him. If a city went over to him without fighting, he would reward them. If a city fought against him, he would savagely destroy it. And he also, after conquering the region, defeating the satrap at the Battle of Granitus, appointed a Macedonian, but kept the position of satrap in place. And so basically what he did, he conquered it. He was like, for the most part, local leaders, they can chill, they can keep their positions. However, we got a loyal Macedonian as the big guy in charge around here. And as long as the tribute keeps coming to him and then to me, everything's going to be cool. Again, we'll get more into the nitty-gritty of how Alexander administered his empire in a later episode. You know, we got questions. Did he care or influence how money was spent? Did he have wider civil did he have wider civic goals motivating his conquest? Did he have ambitions for his empire beyond just conquering it? All important questions, all things we're gonna strive to answer as this progresses. One of the issues when reconstructing this, you know, trying to answer these questions is the lack of surviving primary sources. We know that at times there were extensive records for a lot of these things, like requisition orders, supplies, minting of coins, but we don't have any access to it. Really, you know, some of them appear throughout the sources, but often not in real detail or unreliably. Anyway, following the Battle of the Granitus River, We know that Alexander commissioned an artist to create bronze statues of the Macedonians who had fallen in the battle, and he also canceled taxes on the relatives of those who perished. That's like immediate relatives like, you know, fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, things like that. It wasn't like, hey, my third cousin died in this battle. I'm pretty bummed. Can I not pay taxes? Dude was paying taxes. Sorry. This suggests that, you know, that's a pretty significant expense and a loss perpetually of income which seems to suggest that if he was as broke as the sources claim when he took the throne, he wasn't anymore. And then after this, like I mentioned, he appointed a Macedonia satrap, or a satrap, a man named Callus, who may have been brother of Harpalus, one of Alexander's boyhood friends and soon-to-be treasurer, 
and we're going to be talking a little bit more about him later and even more about him next episode. From these early conquests, Alexander progressed further into the Persian Empire, continuing his policy more or less, you know, keeping the institutions he found more or less in place, replacing them with Greek and Macedonian overall administrators, but keeping the local leaders in place where he could. But he would enjoy considerable plunder after conquering areas like the royal capitals of Persia, you know, Babylon, Persepolis, Susa, as well as defeating Darius at the Battle of Issus because Darius and the Persians had this massive supply train that was left beyond, behind when they fled. And also Darius's family was left when he fled, which is not ideal if you're a king waging war to leave your family behind. Not great for PR, not great for leverage, just not a win. So basically this brings us, here's what we're getting at here. Alexander's conquering. As he conquers, his wealth steadily increases, not only in, you know, now he's got all these different areas paying tribute to him, as they had in the Persians, but also he's taking the resources from these areas. So whether it's like, this area has fancy cows, now he's got those. This area has a lot of incense, now he has those. There's also the physical treasure that the Persians had, because this was a wealthy land, so this is like gold, silver utensils. This is the fabulous wealth in the baggage train, like fancy foods, all sorts of non-monetary resources, as well as just staggering amounts of literal gold and silver coins and bullions, which is non-minted silver and gold, I believe, is an accurate way of explaining that. And so his wealth just like basically overnight exponentially increased. But it was also pretty taxing on the regions he was conquering. Because, you know, not only are the are they having to pay tribute now to this guy, which they, you know, mostly continued earlier things, but having one to two, sometimes more large armies in a region, region that's going to attach the resources. The armies have to be fed and supplied. The supplies were sometimes looted from surrounding areas, not paid for. Often there was, you know, general villainy in the regions. Sometimes soldiers would defect and form kind of like brigandry groups and get up to some steam and robbing of people. And looting and plunder also became a key part of the war, maybe not for Alexander, but for his army as well. Because, you know, they're paid and pretty generously, especially by the end of the war, but they're not always getting that money delivered to them. And then there's also all this opportunity to loot these fabulous wealth that they had never seen before from these cities and from these areas that they're marching through. And many of these troops would go on to become like quite wealthy at various points of the campaign. And then often, as I was touching on, you know, there was all these rare goods that Alexander came to possess through his conquest. And those would sometimes become more valuable to Alexander even than the coinage because, you know, he could gift these things. Like he could give his mother, for example, these fabulous uh, like purple robes and things that he found and then send them back to her that's a great gift she loves it and he would often send gifts back to his family in macedonia and then there were also there were also the people that he conquered you know they became his subjects for the most part but often when he conquered a city say it resisted you know we got a siege going on the people who survived that siege were captured and sold into slavery they were enslaved which led to even more riches for the king. 
As the army continued marching east, conquering Persia, and then getting into the satraps, the satrapies of Batria and Sabdiana, the army's behavior, as well as their chains, continued to decline. And it seems that the army became more and more ravenous for plunder, and to be honest with you, murder, as things progressed. There's, of course, the famous burning of the palace at Persepolis, but the conduct of Alexander's army in Batria and Sadiana, as well as India, were truly brutal. And part of that is, you know, these are brutal areas, tougher fighting than they had fought in the previous battles against Persia. You know, we got gorilla tactics, we have horrible rain once we get to India. All these, like, the plants are all deadly, poisonous, stuff like that. And there isn't as much wealth accessible to the to the average troops. There's not as much gold and silver lying around. But this is where I think a lot of these, like, massacres, pillaging, destruction, the, like, unhinged army of Alexander comes into play. Because they've been fighting, they've been marching for years. Brutal fighting. Things are getting worse. There's elephants, there's terrible conditions, not a lot of decisive battles, like a bunch of little encounters for the most part. And they're not getting, like, re... They're not getting all this plunder constantly to be like, it's worth it because we're getting all this rich. They've already been rich. They've been richer than they've ever thought they would be for years at this point. And I think that also, once they... So, before he crosses into India... There's this famous story of Alexander having his men burn their looted plunder from Persia. So we're going to have way better plunder here. And they do, they did a ton of plunder in India. But I wonder if that contributes to the mutiny in India, where they refuse to march any further. They've already been wealthy. They've already had to burn one, like, fortune. They've won another like, why fight for more? They're not getting any richer, really. They're, like, horrible conditions. So I think not only did that contribute to the brutality, they did also participate to the mutiny. I know I've been sort of rambling, so I am going to wrap up this rambling middle of the episode and get into the coins that Alexander minted and their legacy in a couple of minutes. But before I do, let's talk about how he spent all this wealth that he accrued. So obviously, he had to mint coins, and he mints a ton. But all of our sources point to a generous king. Numerous stories of him financing the construction of temples in conquered areas, of him donating generously to local gods and temples that he encounters, of him giving gifts to those who would ally to themselves to him willingly, surrender to him willingly. And that's, you know, not just monetary gifts, but things like doling out his land, like rearranging the kingdoms he encounters to give allies more territory but still reporting to him stuff like that he also bestowed gifts on his family back home in macedonia as i touched on particularly his mother olympias and his sister cleopatra and he also doled gifts on the captured family of darius he was also very fond of contests gave out money so he held tons of like competitions athletic competitions training competitions plays poetry anything you can name you know he's got dances going on artists surrounds himself with these figures has Olympic contest style contest for his troops, like festivals, things like that. And he would give out lots of money, staggering amounts of money to winners of these. Sometimes he would just give out money because he was in a good mood and he had a ton of money. <laughs> Another favorite thing of him to do was finance the building of previous great artifacts. We have the stories of him restoring the tomb of Cyrus the Great, for example. We also have stories of him, you know, like building monuments throughout the kingdoms. 
that he conquered, as well as founding the construction of cities, resettling settlements, or resettling, creating settlements, much of which he named Alexandria, of course. The famous city of Alexandria, which would mostly sprout up and become famous for becoming the capital of Ptolemaic Egypt. Anyway, our dude was so generous that his mother is said to have warned him that he wasn't doing himself any favors by being so generous, right? She was like, you're only inflaming you're only inflaming the desires and greed of your companions and giving them the wealth and air of kings, which I guess she's probably trying to say, like, you're not winning loyalty from them. You're just raising them up to your level. Perhaps most noteworthy of the king's generosity came during the marriage ceremony at Susa, which we'll talk about which we'll talk more about next episode as we discuss Alexander, the lover. But this mass marriage came after Alexander's army had lost a lot of their war-won wealth during their disastrous march through the Geodrosian Desert. And after he learned that somehow his army was almost 10,000 talents in debt. So a talent was a considerable amount of money, right? It's about 6,000 drachma. Unless I'm awful at math, which is always a possibility here. But 10,000 talents... That's just a lot of money, especially considering Alexander had gifted them large sums, even following the loss of their wealth in the desert. So he forgives these debts. But this raises a couple questions. How could the army of so rich a king be so broke? So for one thing, obviously, we're left with the picture of an army who, for all their mockery of Persian lavishness and love of spending before the war outstripped their the people they defeated in outrageous lifestyle expenses and clearly they also weren't being paid on time and probably were going into debt that way and then guessing and accruing interest there while waiting to be paid and i think that brings us to the management or mismanagement of alexander's wealth and empire which again we'll get into in more detail in Alexander the Administrator, a later episode. But this is a good time to talk about his treasurer and boyhood friend, Harpalus. Who I'm guessing, a lot of these satraps and Harpalus that were left behind in Persia as Alexander continued marching east and into India, probably thought our dude was going to die. They certainly didn't seem to think he'd be coming back anytime soon. And so a lot of them abused their power and positions. Some were just, you know, basically living party lifestyles as kings, like our guy Harpalus. Some of them were just cruel and stripping the, um, the regions they controlled of any wealth in the name of Alexander. It was a mixed bag, but none of them were really great. And perhaps worst among them was Harpalus, who would acquaint himself with many ladies and spend great sums of Alexander's wealth. He lived a lavish lifestyle, lived as a king, surrounding himself with prostitutes, actors, singers, and athletes, like a royal court, basically, in the capital of Babylon. He also built a great temple to one lover of his, perhaps naming another queen and building a statue to her beauty. He very clearly never expected Alexander to return. However, he did make plans in case he did which I guess maybe indicates he did expect him to return, and made plans to flee to Athens, which he did follow through with those plans once Alexander did return and started putting a bunch of the satraps who had been abusing their power to death. So 
Alexander returns from India, finds his empire just rotting from within, and starts trying to right the wrongs of his satraps and treasurers. So his other treasurers, not as ostentatious as Harpalus, not living like kings necessarily, not treating prostitutes as queens, no shame to the prostitutes, no shade to them at all, but they were not great at the roles still. A few of them certainly maximized profits. Like I said, they were very cruel to those under their control and very taxing, like racking up old ancient taxes for emergencies to kind of strip wealth from the locals. And all of this points to paints a picture of Alexander not being great at managing those responsible for overseeing the non-military aspects of his kingdom, which is interesting because we have all these stories of like his communication chains not being interrupted, even as he marches, just taking more time for them to reach him. So it's like, who, like, what were they writing to you, my dude? But yeah, I think that brings us to Toynich. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, Alexander didn't mint coinage in his own image until after his victory at the Battle of Issus. But once he did, he coined a lot of it. More than we'll ever be able to know, really, because, you know, like I've touched on, those ancient sources, those primary ancient sources, gone. He also introduced new styles of new styles of coinage, putting himself on one side and gods on the other side, and this new type of coinage became iconic with his successors often using coins in his image or, you know, eventually minting coins in their own image, but always emphasizing their closeness to him for decades and even centuries following his death. However, these coins and those later rulers, however, these coins that the later rulers would strike were only possible due to Alexander's conquest because they continued to be minted on buoy Alexander plundered from the Persians. So where does all this leave us? I don't really know. Basically, all this episode and all this rambling I've gotten to, I don't know if we've progressed more or less from where we've been at the beginning of this episode. Alexander accrued a staggering amount of wealth during his conquest of the Persian Empire. Wealth that came not only in insane amounts of bouillon, gold, silver, and precious jewels, but also lands, cities, Things like vases, jewelry, processed gold and silver, you know, like utensils, plates, silverware, cups, tubs, like you name it, we got it in gold, silver, there's precious jewels. And then, you know, like fancy lifestyle things like incense, spices, extravagant foods, units, tortoises, concubines, all those enslaved during the conquest, plus things like elephants, fabulous purple cloth. We could go on and on. There's just truly no end to the monetary wealth and the non-monetary wealth that Alexander won during his conquest of the Persian Empire. And it would be unfair to say that he liberated these from the Persians, which is sometimes primarily an older, or by older historians and older sources, that he liberated these like stagnant wealth from Persia and beyond. But I think it is fair to say that his conquest allowed it to be diffused throughout the lands that he conquered and beyond during his reign and then following his death, especially as his generals waged war after the war to determine who could succeed him. So 
this episode pretty quick, a little rambly, maybe very rambly. And that is because I think I stretched myself a little bit here. Don't, you know, obviously let me know what you thought about this episode, listeners. Let me know if you thought out of line, that great, decent, whatever. But I think it was an important episode to try to cover because obviously Alexander the Great was a gifted general. However, his empire, we're starting to see maybe not the best managed administratively, maybe not a ton of economic policy going on from our guy. And then we're also starting to see maybe why it instantaneously collapsed following his death. So, again, probably not going to be the best episode of the season. I think it was okay, at least, hopefully, and was hopefully a little bit informative and very entertaining for you. I felt a little bit like, you know, Charlie Day from the It's Always Sunny meme, or from It's Always Sunny doing the Pepe Sylvia meme, but hopefully enjoyable. Because I was sick last week, we do have another episode coming out, an episode that I'm very excited about and is maybe my most irresponsible episode this season. Coming out on Valentine's Day, I scheduled the entire season around this, and that is Alexander the Lover, which is not just about like the romantic love life of Alexander the Great, but also his relationships with his friends, his family, and of course, his horse Bucephalus. So I'm very excited for that episode. I think it's going to be very good. And again, while we can't truly know the man, I think it's going to be very informative in trying to figure out who he was beyond a great general. So, but that's all we have for today. So as always, if you did what you're hearing, be sure to hop on the podcast platform of your choice. Drop those five-star ratings, those five-star reviews, and be sure to follow High Tea Obsessed Podcast on Instagram to stay up to date on all things High Tea Obsessed, as well as stupid memes, occasional funny videos, and book reviews. Keep tabs on what I've been reading, what I'm up to literary-wise. So until next time, remember, Money Trees is the perfect place for shade, and that's just how I feel.